So the rapper Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, has been celebrated and elevated by many on the right for his outspoken criticism of liberals. On Friday, he went a little too far for some people. Will Aremus writes tech analysis for The Post, and he's been following this controversy over anti-Semitic posts from the rapper Ye. He posted anti-Semitic comments on Instagram. Instagram took them down and locked his account. Kanye showed up on Twitter for the first time in two years, posted possibly even more anti-Semitic comments there. Twitter deleted them and locked his Twitter account. What interested Will about this wasn't the content of the posts or the fact that these platforms took them down, which is pretty unsurprising. What interested me as a tech reporter is that this comes at a time when we're in the midst of a conservative-led movement to rein in what some see as censorship by the Silicon Valley giants. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Arjun Singh. It's Tuesday, October 11th. Today, how content moderation became a front line in the culture war, and why Kanye's tweet could be a preview of what Twitter could look like in the future. So one of the things I noticed watching this controversy play out over the weekend was that Elon Musk welcomed Ye back to Twitter. Can you just remind us what's going on with Elon Musk? He was buying Twitter, then he wasn't, and now he's buying it again? So Musk, back in April, attempted a hostile takeover of Twitter. He ended up bidding about $44 billion to buy the social network outright, take it from a publicly traded company to a privately owned one. And they accepted his bid, and then almost immediately he started trying to back out of it. And then they got in a big legal fight as he tried to say that Twitter had misled him about important metrics to the company's business. And they were headed to trial in Delaware this month, I was planning to go cover it uh, when Musk offered again to buy the company for the original amount. So now they have until October 28th to close that deal with Elon buying Twitter, taking it private. Otherwise, it goes back to trial and they're back into the legal wrangling. And Elon Musk has talked a lot about this idea that these platforms should do less content moderation. Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. Uh, it- it, it's just really important that people have the, both the, uh, the reality and the perception uh, that they are able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. How widespread is that idea on the right? This is a big movement on the right. There is genuine concern, I think, and maybe also some opportunistic outrage at the idea that the giant tech platforms are suppressing conservative views. Now, this comes from what you alluded to, content moderation. So from the start, online forums have found that they need some sort of moderation of what people say. Otherwise, people can attack each other. They can you know, libel or defame each other. They can post people's private information. They can post pornography, scams, all kinds of terrible stuff if you don't have people who are setting some rules for the forum and trying to enforce them. Now, when online forums were mostly small, 
that was not particularly controversial. It was just something that each forum could decide for itself. You know, what are the rules we're going to make? Uh, okay, this person's being a jerk. We're going to kick them out of here. Um, you know, this person seems like they're salvageable, so we'll just have a talk with them and, you know, give them a warning. But over the years, as these tech platforms have gotten huge and become probably the most important conduits of public speech and political discourse in the world, that power, those decisions that they make have taken on much greater importance, and they've become very controversial. So the big social networks now, like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, they have big, fat rule books of all the, the, the guidelines for what you can say and what you can't say and what the various enforcement responses will be. And one of the things that they focus on is a hate speech or speech that's bigoted. Now, that tends to affect a lot more conservatives in the United States than liberals, and they feel like they're on the wrong side of a lot of these rules. And as a result, they feel like these Silicon Valley tech giants are aligned against them and discriminating against their ability to speak on equal footing with everybody else. Is this idea of content moderation to tamp down on something like hate speech, though, a new concept? Like, I feel like even back in the earlier days of the Internet, you'd go on chat rooms and forums. Moderators would be there because there was a rule book in place, you know, sometimes to stop things like hate speech, sometimes to make sure that spam marketing wasn't there. But it had felt like this is something that has been a part of operating within the online ecosystem. So why is it now that conservatives are really coming out and taking it as political oppression or, you know, really seeing this as an attack on free speech? So in the relatively early days of the internet, content moderation was not really seen as a political issue. It was something that was left up to each little website or blog or discussion forum or listserv. There was actually a 1996 law called the Communications Decency Act, and there was a section of it called Section 230 that gave online platforms immunity for what their users post. So if I run a website, I can't be sued for what you come and post on my website in most cases. That put the power in the hands of the websites, the online platforms. And at the time, they were mostly small. Again, these were, these were the insurgents. These were the disruptive little guys going against the big media gatekeepers. And so the internet was really seen by both left and right as a haven for free speech. You could get on there and say stuff or hear stuff or learn stuff that you could not get on your evening news broadcast or even on cable news at the time. Now, it stayed relatively uncontroversial, maybe for about 10 years or so. But as some of these platforms started to get really big and global, it started to become clear that it really mattered what their rules were. So like back in 2006, Saddam Hussein was hanged in Iraq by the fledgling Iraqi government. Somebody posted a grainy amateur video of that to YouTube. Now, until that point, there had only been the official media reports of the hanging. And they no Westerners were allowed in, no media were allowed in. We didn't have a good picture of what had happened. Now, this amateur video was on YouTube, and this website, this brand new website, had to decide, oh, well, do we let people see that? Are we going to let people see the hanging of Saddam Hussein? Or are we going to take it down because we have a rule against depicting graphic violence? They decided it was newsworthy, and they 
would leave it up. And that sort of foreshadowed these types of thorny decisions that these big influential platforms would face again and again in the years to come. Some of the decisions started to become more politically controversial in the mid-2010s. So you had Gamergate, which started in 2014, which was this movement of mostly young, mostly male gamers who were angry about what they saw as a sort of progressive social justice warrior agenda in the gaming media. And they started attacking uh, women who were in the video game industry, women who were in the gaming media online. They started doing coordinated attacks, threatening them, doing swatting attacks where you call you call the authorities and have people show up at somebody's home with guns drawn. I mean, this was scary. Wait, stuff. like it, you just have like a bunch of cops just show up at someone's door. This was just happening to people because of these social media fights and stuff. Yeah, and it was just a, it was a handful of women that they were angry at in the gaming industry who were the target of these attacks. And the goal clearly was to silence them, to drive them offline, to intimidate them into shutting up. And so that was one of the first times when it became clear to the big social networks that the free speech of some users might not be compatible with the free speech of other users. And then in 2016, the election of Donald Trump really amplified it because Donald Trump was a person who said the things that you're not supposed to say. I think the big problem this country has is being politically correct. You know, he was an outsider. He attacked the traditional media. He attacked the establishment. And frankly, what I say, and oftentimes it's fun, it's kidding, we have a good time. What I say is what I say. And he said things on social media that got him a huge audience, but that actually were probably against the rules of these social platforms. Yet here's a guy who's running for president, and then, of course, he became president. Do you kick off the president? I mean, that seemed like a big, weighty decision, because by this time, these platforms are really, really important, maybe even more important as gatekeepers of public discourse than the traditional media. Can I back up a little bit? And I know that we're talking about several different social media platforms, but broadly speaking, are there policies in place where you do see social media companies taking things down because of an ideological position or are usually these posts violating other elements of social media policies? The social networks will tell you they do not take anything down purely because of political ideology. Everything they take down is because it violates one of their rules. Now, where that gets murky is that some of their rules overlap with partisan politics. So, for instance, when the COVID-19 epidemic started, Facebook thought, well, look, we don't want to be complicit in spreading misinformation about a pandemic that could lead to tons of deaths and be terrible for society. And that would be, we would hate to be implicated in that. So we're going to start taking down misinformation about COVID-19. Now, up to that point, most social networks have been really reticent about policing the truth. They would police behavior, but they didn't want to be in the business of deciding what was true and what was false. With COVID-19, Facebook thought, well, here's a case where we can do that. You know, we have the public health authorities telling us what information is credible and what's not. We know there's a lot of lies and conspiracy theories out there. We're going to start taking down the lies and conspiracy theories. Well, President Donald Trump started embracing some of those same 
conspiracy theories that Facebook was taking down. There were also people on the right who I think had legitimate skepticism of some of the public health guidelines. We learned later that some of the CDC's guidelines on masking at the very beginning were totally wrong. They said masks won't help against coronavirus at the beginning. That was wrong. And so Facebook was in the position of treating public health guidelines as if they were the objective truth and then enforcing them. And people on the right, I think, you know, in that case, somewhat legitimately started to say, hey, if we can't criticize the public health guidelines on the world's biggest social network, that's a problem, right? Like, this is supposed to be a place for debate, and we're not even allowed to dissent from what the authorities are telling us. That starts to feel sort of Orwellian to them. After the break, we talk about some of the critics of social media companies and what they want online forums to look like. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. I want to talk more about like who are the people today that are really pushing this idea that there is a censorship regime coming out of these Silicon Valley companies. Like we talked about Yay, we've talked about Elon Musk, and we've been talking about this conservative movement. But I mean, Will, are these people who we would consider on the fringes of mainstream political movements, or are we seeing like more mainstream right wing and conservative figures also? agreeing with what Ye and others are saying, that there is some kind of censorship regime coming out of these companies? I think until about 2016, this was a pretty niche concern. I mean, you only, only people who were really online would get hot and bothered about social media content moderation policies. That started to change in around 2017. I mean, one watershed moment was the tech blog Gizmodo ran a report from an insider at Facebook who was in charge of editing their trending news section. So these were like the little, there was the trending topics on Facebook that would lead you to some of the most hotly discussed topics of the day. That person alleged anonymously that his coworkers, you know, the, this person was conservative. They said they alleged that their coworkers had a liberal bias, that these were like Silicon Valley liberals who were imposing their ideology on this trending section that people thought was just automated. They thought it was objective. Then you started to get a much broader swath of the right concerned about this idea. All of a sudden, they're like, oh, yeah, wait. I mean, these tech companies are run by liberals out in California. You know, they're in San Francisco. Who knows what they believe? And they're enforcing their values on us. You had all these conservative leaders, and, and Mark Zuckerberg got worried. And he started going on sort of an apology tour and meeting with them and saying, hey, we're not biased. He started doing unconscious bias training for Facebook employees to make sure they weren't biased against conservatives. But by this point, the issue has just snowballed. I mean, the more important these social platforms get in terms of online speech and political discourse and the way we do politics today in the 21st century, the more controversy there is about how they enforce their rules. At this point, it is a mainstream position on the right. It is a mainstream 
conservative position that social networks are censoring conservative views and that they need to be stopped. This is now a big fundraising one. This is the top fundraising line for Republican candidates when they send out email blasts. They say, big tech is trying to censor us. You know, donate to me so that we can stop them. And now you're starting to see legislation and laws and court cases trying to take back some of that power from the tech companies over online speech. You know, I find that really interesting because I remember when Facebook was starting to get in the middle of these controversies, they actually made a point to reach out to conservatives. Even their point person in D.C. was a former Republican operative. You've seen people like Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, also, you know, expressing sympathy for some of these ideas. So I guess what have the social media companies said in response to these kinds of accusations and what exactly do these critics want? What do they want these platforms to do that they feel like they're not doing right now? The leaders of the big social networks have really tried to go out of their way to portray themselves as neutral, to emphasize that they like free speech. They want a free, healthy exchange of ideas on their platforms, that they hear the concerns of conservatives uh, who feel like they're being censored. And I should, I should say, I mean, it's not just a concern on the right. People across the left are angry at the social networks, often for the opposite reason. They feel like these big platforms are enabling all sorts of lies and bigotry and conspiracies to go viral. They will point out that if you say something outrageous on a social network, the way social networks work, those things are going to get lots of likes and lots of comments. And even if people are angry about them, that just makes the algorithm amplify them even more and show them more people. And so they will argue that there's actually an incentive that these social networks create to say incendiary things. And that that means that the social networks have a responsibility in turn to do something about it, to not be complicit in the spread of anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, to not be complicit in the rise of modern day uh, white supremacy and Nazism. Um, you know, the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally um, was a moment when people who had organized online, groups of militia and white supremacists that had met online and organized the rally online and planned, uh, you know, to bring guns and such on these social networks, they showed up, you know, and marched in the streets and somebody died. And a lot of the blame from the left for that fell on the social networks for facilitating this kind of extremism. Um, it's a place where people meet like-minded people and reinforce each other's ideas and get more and more angry and more and more extreme to the point where they don't even believe anything they read in the mainstream news. Um, and so you've got the pressure from both sides. And so the people like Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey have been, you know, contorting themselves in knots trying to assuage both sides. And, you know, I think there actually is something to the fact that they aren't really running these social networks to advance a liberal agenda or a conservative agenda. I genuinely don't think from all my reporting over the years that they are trying to make Facebook or Twitter or TikTok a liberal place or a conservative place. They're trying to enforce their rules and, and really they're out to make money, right? They want it to be a place where users feel safe, where users feel comfortable. They want to minimize the backlashes and the controversies and the anger at themselves. And so I think those are the real motivating forces, not like like, can we get Donald Trump elected or can we get Joe Biden elected? But now, you know, one of those people who has been going out there saying places like Twitter have been overly restrictive, Elon Musk is on the verge of controlling that platform. 
what has Musk said he would do if he were in charge of Twitter to make it a more open space, if you will? And and what would a Twitter under Elon Musk kind of look like? Do we have any idea of what he wants to do if he has control of the company? So Elon Musk has this idea to buy Twitter and to make it more of a place to fr- for free speech. He refers to their uh, head of, of trust and safety as their censor in chief uh, and criticizes her publicly while she's still at the company. Um, you know, he criticizes decisions they've made. Uh, he says they were foolish and wrong to, to ban Donald Trump, um, that you've just made people angrier by doing that. Just let, you know, let people speak. Now, how that will actually play out if Elon Musk comes to a acquire Twitter, we don't really know. I mean, he's a very unpredictable person. (laughs) He does seem to speak his mind, but his mind seems to change all the time. So at one point he said that he thinks that free speech on Twitter should mean that which matches the law. So basically, if it isn't against the law, then it shouldn't be taken down. But then at another point, you know, people say, well, what if somebody's using it to incite violence and riots? And then at one point he said, well, if it's, you know, if it's wrong and bad, then sure, we should take it down. But otherwise we should leave it up. And, you know, and at another point he said, uh, I'm politically neutral. I think a social network's probably doing a good job if, it, if the 10% most extreme on the right and the left are angry. So we don't exactly know what he's going to do with it, but we do know he's been pretty consistent in the idea that he doesn't think all the investments Twitter has been making in things like safety, in things like content moderation, in trying to engineer healthier discourse and conversations, he doesn't think that's where they should be spending their money. He would like to see them spending their money on getting rid of spam and bots Um, He would like to see them spending their money on building new products that can uh, make more money for the company because Twitter has always struggled to turn a profit. Well, and at one point in time, I feel like a lot of the social media founders did have this idea that, you know, opening up free speech for everyone on a platform that they can all get together and have sort of an equal voice is going to lead to much better things. And all of these platforms, like you had said, will have started to move into content moderation. So we're talking about Elon Musk kind of on the outside wanting to take over this company. But once he, say, becomes the owner, what are some of the dangers or problems with a non-content moderated platform going to be that he could encounter from that perspective? Like, what what are some of the dangers of just having this unrestricted speech on these platforms that people are concerned about? Almost every online forum, even if they set out to be a haven for free speech, quickly finds that they have to have some rules. For one thing, there are certain types of speech that are illegal, even in the United States. In the United States, First Amendment is one of the broadest legal protections for all kinds of speech that any country in the world has. It protects offensive speech. I want to be clear, it protects Ye's speech. Those anti-Semitic remarks he made on Instagram and Twitter, those are constitutionally protected under the First Amendment in the United States. They are not against the law. He has the right to say them, and he has the right not to be censored by the U.S. government for saying them. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he has the right not to have them taken down by a private platform like Twitter or Instagram. So these private platforms quickly find, if they try not to do any moderation, that they run into trouble not with the law, although that that could happen. I mean, there, there are still a few types of speech that are illegal. But then it becomes a matter of practicality. If you don't moderate at all, you end up with 
all the worst people who are the most offensive, have the most bigoted views, they're going to gravitate to your platform because all the things that they're not allowed to say in public, all the things that would get them kicked out of a dinner party or fired from their job, spurned by their neighbors, um, you know, they can say on your site. So they're going to come there and they're going to do that. They're going to start sharing Nazi rhetoric and horrible, you know, shocking pornography. And like, that's what is going to come to define your site if you don't do moderation. And that is what these free speech networks have found is that they actually can't hold to that. They have to start moderating or else nobody wants to use it. Like nobody wants, no normal person, even a conservative wants to get on a site where people are just saying the most like shocking and outrageous stuff because they can. And so I think Elon Musk is going to quickly run into that if indeed he does take over Twitter. I think what we'll see, if anything, is, is more changes on the margins. I mean, Twitter will be investing less in enforcing its rules. It might relax some of its rules. Um, it might not. I just think it will be less proactive and it will be less of a focus to try to make users feel safe and comfortable and to try to filter out sort of the worst speech, that'll be less of a focus. Their focus will shift to other things. And then how that dynamic plays out over time, I don't know. I mean, Twitter was a pretty permissive place until maybe 2015, 2017, around the time of Gamergate. I mean, that's why Gamergate happened. And it was a problem for Twitter's business. Twitter was in a tough financial situation years ago and wanted to find a buyer. It was shopping itself around. There was interest from big companies like Salesforce and Disney. They all ended up deciding not to buy it because they were like, this site is too much of a liability. It's got too much awful stuff. It's going to be bad for our brand. We're going to, you know, we just don't feel comfortable owning this site. And so it will become a business problem. Now, with Elon Musk owning it outright, you know, owning it as a private company, he won't be subject to the same market pressures that Twitter is today as a public company. Maybe he has some leeway there, but I don't think he wants to run it as a money-losing site either. So I think there's a good chance that if Elon Musk does end up owning Twitter, over time, it will either start shedding users as people say, you know what, I don't like a site where people are free to disparage Jews or call for violence against black people or, or that kind of thing. Um, you know, and Twitter will just shrink in influence and become less important, or it'll end up looking a lot like it does today. And he'll realize, you know what, we actually do have to do content moderation after all. Yeah. And, you know, so far, it seems like this has largely been an issue within the tech industry that they have tried to reconcile with. But as it becomes more entrenched in politics and politicians get on board, Will, do you see an eventual clash between social media and government? Texas and Florida, which are Republican-led states with Republican governors, have passed and signed laws that prohibit large social networks from censoring certain types of speech. So Florida passed a law that said social networks cannot censor the speech of politicians or certified candidates for a public office or media organizations. Texas's law went further. It said that any user, you know, any Texan has the right to sue a large social media company if they feel that they are being censored based on their viewpoint. So that would leave room for platforms like Facebook and Twitter and TikTok to still take down pornography, to still uh, enforce some rules about harassment or exposing people's private information. 
they could say that's not based on viewpoint, right? I mean, this is based on, you know, this is based on safety. We apply it equally to right and left. But it would take away their power to do something like take down COVID misinformation. That would probably be a viewpoint. And so if you expressed skepticism of COVID vaccines in Texas under this law and Facebook either took down your post or suspended you or even just limited the reach of your post in some way, which is now something that the social networks do. I mean, they, they've come up with, you know, with, with new ways to try to prevent uh, lies and conspiracy theories from going viral via their algorithms. They'll leave the post up, but they'll, they'll, you know, they'll try to make sure it doesn't get shown to too many people. If Facebook does any of those things to you, now under that Texas law, you could sue Facebook for violating your rights uh, and Facebook could be held liable. Now, the Texas law has not taken effect yet, even though it has passed. Neither has the Florida law. Both of them are tied up in big court battles. And ultimately, it looks like this is going to go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is going to decide, do state governments have the right to regulate private social media companies' content moderation policies? The Supreme Court hasn't agreed to take the case yet, but most legal experts think they will. Uh, and when they do, that will have wide-ranging implications. Because if they uphold large parts of the Texas or Florida laws, every other state in the country that has a conservative uh, legislature and a Republican governor is going to pass similar laws. And we will see uh, a very different social media and internet in the future. Will, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, Arjun. Will Aremus is a news analysis writer for The Post. He writes about technology and society. This story was produced by Remy Svernovsky, who also mixed the show. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Arjun Singh. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.